Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Connor, for uh, reading us through that. So, hey, we're in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've said all along, right, that um, Ephesians has two sections, chapters one through three in the book of Ephesians, tell us just how to rest in Christ. Just all these amazing things that Christ has done for us, to us, and, and wants to do, you know, through us. And then in uh, uh, chapters 4 through 6, we get to talk about how to live that out, how to live accordingly in light of what Christ has done for us. You might say it this way, uh, the first three chapters tell us what God has done for us, and then the last three chapters tell us what, how we should live as a result, what we can do or should do uh, for God. And, and so we're in those back uh, chapters where it's just really, really practical stuff that we're walking through. In fact, we begin this way, right? He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, uh, an unwholesome word is a discouraging word. An unwholesome word, the word here, unwholesome, literally means rotten. Uh, so words that rot, words that tear down, words that break down, words that fall apart. This is referring to words that are destructive to others in the same way that rot is destructive to food. On the other hand, he says, only speak what's helpful for building others up. So a wholesome word is an encouraging word, a word that builds up someone, a word that moves them forward, right? So I can either use my words to tear down other people, or I can use my words to build them up. One of my favorite stories about this, just a great illustration. I often love to talk about Abraham Lincoln. Many of you have heard me say that um, he is uh, absolutely my favorite president. I think he had to lead our country through its most difficult um, season. And so when Abraham Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865, uh, his pockets contain the following items. So this is what they found on his person the night he was shot. There were two pairs of spectacles, there was a lens polisher, there was a pocket knife, there was a watch fob, there was a linen handkerchief, and then there was a brown leather wallet containing a $5 Confederate note. Uh, but in that wallet were also eight newspaper clippings all of which were favorable to uh, Abraham Lincoln. So they spoke positively about him and or his policies. And many of you may know that Abraham Lincoln, because of the division that existed in our country during the Civil War, he was one of the most maligned presidents of his day. I mean, he was subjected to tremendous criticism. To use the biblical word, he was subjected to many, many unwholesome words at the hands of people, right? So you, it begs the question, why would Abraham Lincoln carry these newspaper clippings in his pocket? It's because Abraham Lincoln, just like you and just like me, he needed encouragement. He needed 
to be built up. He needed words that gave him the courage to get out of bed the next morning and do the hardest thing he'd ever had to do. And Abraham Lincoln had to do a lot, lot, lot of really hard things. But leading our country uh, was so demanding that he kept those. And my gut would tell me that um, on a rainy day, when, he, when the criticism was just too much to bear, he'd pull that wallet out and he would read some of those encouraging words found in those newspaper articles. Uh, so I have something here. This is an actual box I keep in my office. This is every single note of encouragement that I have gotten over the years here at Shelbyville Community Church. I've kept them all. Actually, the box is empty. I haven't gotten any encouragement as I've been here. I'm just going to, yeah, well, just, you're just going to have to believe, right, that there's actually notes in here. And what I'll do when I go through a season where I'm really, really tired or a little unhealthy or a little discouraged, I'll pull this thing out, you know, and I'll just... Uh, you know, maybe read four or five or go halfway down and read four or five. And over the years, this has served to really get me through. And this is so meaningful to me, the contents of this box. I mean, like if you were to come up here, I'd wrestle you for it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I wouldn't let, you, I wouldn't let anybody just take this from me. It's that important to me. And I think when you look back at Lincoln's life, you see the same thing. And it just begs the question, doesn't it? And the question is this, who do you need to speak a wholesome word to this week? Who do you need to stop speaking unwholesome words about? Who are you tearing down so that you can look or feel better about yourself? See, what's so amazing about this teaching, remember we said this teaching is built upon the foundation of what Jesus has done for us. And remember that back in Ephesians 1, we were told that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in securing our salvation. We've been chosen and adopted by the Father. We've been forgiven and redeemed, purchased by the Son. And we've been sealed uh, and indwelt by by the Holy Spirit of God. So every member of the Trinity was involved in our salvation. So why would somebody who's been chosen by God, adopted into the family of God, need to tear someone else down? There's never a reason you should have to do that to feel better about yourself. Because you've been chosen by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You've been adopted into the family and the household of God. You've been purchased and redeemed by the Son. You've been sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, this next verse is uh, going to harken back to some teaching we got a little earlier in our series. Here's what it says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, uh, one of the things this tells us that isn't always obvious is that the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, 
Now, when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, we don't mean that he has a body or that he's flesh and blood. When we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, what we mean is that he has a personality. He has desires. He has a will. Uh, you know, he uh, has feelings. Uh, and what that means is that he can be grieved. And what's so heartbreaking about this is that you and I are the ones who so often do that grieving of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember that back in uh, chapter 1 again in verses 13 and 14, um, here's what it said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. We talked about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It said, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, uh, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession. So first, he, this idea of sealing, and, and Paul goes right back to that again. He says, look, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you you were sealed. Now, sealing speaks to a couple of things. It speaks, first of all, uh, to a seal that a king might put on an envelope that was official. And so nobody was to break that seal unless they were authorized to do so. So it's this idea of preservation. The Holy Spirit's given to us so that we don't have to walk or live the Christian life alone or by ourselves, right? He's there to empower and enable us. So it's this idea of preservation. Um, and then, but secondly, notice that he, he calls the Holy Spirit a deposit or a down payment. And we all get this, right? Because anytime any of us have bought something large or expensive, what are we required to do? We're required to put down a deposit or a down payment. And what does that deposit indicate? I'm good for this. I'm going to see this through. I plan to purchase this vehicle or this home or whatever it is we're putting the down payment on. And in the same way, what we're told here is that the Holy Spirit, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that he is serving as a down payment guaranteeing that God plans to finish what he started. Uh, this is a really, really big deal. And what it means is that he lives in you and he lives uh, in you to help you. He lives in you to empower you. He lives in you to lead you. In fact, one of the terms that's used of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is the term counselor. So when you fail to surrender to his leadership, we're told here that grieves him. Now, to grieve someone is to cause them sorrow. It's to pain or, or to cause them pain or to cause them distress. And I, I really want you to think about this. What this means is that it is possible for you and I to cause the Holy Spirit within us to suffer, to hurt. And you go, well, well how does that work? How do, how do we do that? How does that happen? Well, any time that we do something 
that the Holy Spirit would not have us do. And you say, well, well what would that be? Well, listen, anytime you want to know uh, what something means, you always go to the context. You look at the verses that come before and you look at the verses that come after. And fortunately, when we look at the context here, we're told very, very clearly the kind of behavior that grieves the Holy Spirit. So first of all, what came before is the verse we just looked at, right? So we can make a correlation. We can say, well, we know it grieves the Holy Spirit when I speak unwholesomely about someone else. When I speak about someone else in a way that belittles them or tears that down, that grieves the Holy Spirit. But then secondly, from the verses that come after, we also know, you know, what kind of behavior um, grieves the Holy Spirit. Now remember, we said that unwholesome talk is really rotten words, words that tear down, words that break down others in the same way that rot is destructive to food. But we also know here that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He says to put off things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, what are some of those things? Well, the first thing he says is um, put off bitterness. Bitterness. Now, bitterness is kind of a chronic anger, a festering anger that has morphed into a malady. It's morphed into something toxic or cancerous in our lives. So that, as we said last week, it's not just that I am angry, I've become anger. It's what fuels me. It what's, it's what motivates me, and that's what describes bitterness. Now, one of my favorite verses about bitterness is Hebrews 12, 15, and here's what it says. It says, it's talking to teachers of God's Word, and he says this, see to it that no one misses the grace of God through a bitter root that would grow up and cause trouble and defile many. Now, we learn so much about bitterness from this verse. First of all, we're told here that someone can actually miss the grace of God through bitterness uh, taking root in their heart. That, that it'll cause people to miss God's grace. This, another thing we learn about bitterness is that um, it does harm, not, not just to the person who holds it, but to everyone around that person that loves them and that they love. Bitterness causes us uh, to hurt the people that we care about. And then finally, and it says, uh, defile many. In other words, the third thing we learn about bitterness is when it gets lodged in our heart, it spreads. It spreads to other people. So, somebody hurts your spouse at work. Your spouse comes home and tells you, and what do you do? You take up an offense, right, for your, for your spouse, or you go tell your best friend. Uh, and, then, and so what do they do? Well, they take up an offense. They get bitter for you, right? This is the nature of bitterness. It's like a forest fire. Bitterness can never, like you can't, it, it just consumes whatever is there. And then finally, we learn something else, so, uh, something else so important about bitterness here. He says, uh, see to it that no one would, would be unsettled by a bitter root. 
And when you think about a tree and you think about a root system, you know, how does a tree draw all of its nourishment out of the ground? It does throw so through its root system, right? So if there is a bitter root that that tree, a toxic root that that tree is drawing nourishment from out of the ground, what's that going to do to the tree? It's going to kill it. Friends, in the same way when you and I allow bitterness to, to accumulate in our heart, not only does it grieve the Holy Spirit, but it is a toxin in your life. And so no wonder Paul says, look, get rid of that. Put that off. But then he goes on uh, to, say, uh, to say this as well. He says that not only do we grieve the Holy Spirit through bitterness, but we grieve the Holy Spirit through uh, things he calls rage and anger. Now, rage is an outburst of anger, right? It's, it's an outburst of anger that just uh, destroys everything around it in the same way that a forest fire might consume a forest. And then uh, anger here is more of a seething anger, like a smoldering anger. It's a settled anger, kind of a low-grade anger. And it doesn't seem debilitating at first. It's just toxic because it's always there. So, and then he goes on to say, and then we further grieve the Spirit through two things he calls brawling and then slander. Now, brawling is actually physical anger expressed in violence or fighting. Um, and then he goes on to say, um, uh, slander is just words that harm, violent, not violent words like punching, but violent, violent words that harm other people. When, when, our, when our words do harm to someone else, he's saying, look, we, those things grieve the Spirit of God within you. And I want to point out something. I want you to notice that all of these things are relational in nature. And this tells us something else so important about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all about relationships. He's all about your relationship with Jesus, and He is all about your relationship with other people. He cares how you treat your wife. He cares how you treat your husband. He cares how you treat your co-workers and how you treat your children. He traffics in relationships. And do you want to know why? Because the Holy Spirit has been part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since the beginning of time. The Holy Spirit has always lived in relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And so relationships, community, are of the utmost importance because the Holy Spirit wants you and I to experience the community that He has experienced uh, with the Son and with the Father and in the Trinity. And you know, you see this beautiful surrender within the Trinity, don't you? I mean, so the Son uh, surrenders to the Father. He says, hey, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only go where my Father tells me to go. And then the Holy Spirit is sent out by Jesus. And His job is essentially, 
you know, to point to Jesus and just say, hey, look at him. Hey, go where he goes. Do what he does. His job is to magnify Jesus in the same way that Jesus' job was to magnify the Father. The Spirit magnifies the Son. And so there's this mutual surrender and mutual submission within the Trinity that he wants you and I to live out every day in our one and only relationships, in our one and only lives. And then he finally goes on and tells us one last way that we grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, every form of malice. Now, malice is just ill will towards someone else. So again, relationships. Uh, it's re- uh, so it might look like this, maybe rejoicing in someone else's failure or wishing harm on someone else. You know, being kind of glad when they lose their job because you kind of think they had it coming and it's about time, you know, that God took them down a peg or a notch. That kind of a, that's all malice. And we're told that that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. That, you know, we, in a sense, that it means that we can hurt his feelings. Not only is the Holy Spirit shy, and, and by shy, I mean he wants Jesus to get all the attention and all the glory, but the Holy Spirit is also sensitive. And you and I hurt his feelings when we hurt our brothers or sisters in Christ. And then he goes on to tell us, now it doesn't say this in the text, but it implies it, how we can live in order to please the Holy Spirit. In other words, how, what, what kinds of actions give the Holy Spirit joy, the joy that he feels when he's in communion with the Father and the Son, the joy that he feels when he's in community and right relationships with other people. Uh, and in fact, in, the, in, the, in another book written by the same author, the book of Galatians, we did that study a few years back. He, he talks about it this way. He says, hey, here's how you keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, here's how you do what the Spirit wants you to do. Here's how you go where the Spirit wants you to go. Uh, it, he calls that keeping in step with the Spirit. So you're, you're, you're being directed by the Spirit of God. How can you know what somebody looks like who's being directed by the Spirit of God? Well, we're told here. He says, instead... Um, you know, we keep in step with the Spirit this way. We're kind and compassionate to one another. We forgive each other. And there's a just as there that raises this up a bar where it isn't just that we forgive each other, but we forgive each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. So we'll come back to that and talk about that more in a minute. But then he goes on to say that we're in step with the Spirit when we're imitating God. Well, how do you do that? Well, you live a life of love in the same way that God has loved you, in the same way that he's demonstrated his love for you, in the same way that he's poured out his love for you. You're to live a life of love and pour yourself out for others. And when you do that, that is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God in the same way it was when Jesus did it. So that's what it looks like to be a man or a woman that is in step with the Holy Spirit. 
really, really important. So here's how we keep in step. First, we build others up. In other words, uh, this is a word that means a grace word. It's a kind word. In fact, he's going to tell us in the next sentence to be kind and compassionate with one another. So this idea of building one another up is, uh, John Maxwell calls this adding value to other people. Using words that continually move people forward and uh, help them, uh, you know, Hit, hit higher, swing higher, uh, live at a higher level. So it's a, a word that uh, builds and promotes and heals. This is a building up word. And then he says, we keep in step with the Spirit by being kind and compassionate with one another. Now, a kind word is a word that is beneficial to uh, someone else. Uh, and a compassion is, it's this, it's empathy for someone. So moving out of your own needs into someone else's world and recognizing that their needs are just as important as your needs. That's what empathy is. Empathy recognizes the importance of other per people's needs beyond, you know, just our own, right? In fact, often in the New Testament, often in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus acted. Maybe Jesus did a healing or, you know, he did something for someone because he was moved with compassion. I love that. That means that our Jesus, when he looks into our lives, he isn't thinking about his needs. He's thinking about what we may need, see? Compassion moves out of yourself into the recognition that other people have needs as well and their needs are at least as important as yours are. And then he tells us one practical way how to live out that compassion. He says, forgiving each other just as and just as, and that just as elevates this, it prioritizes it, uh, just as Jesus Christ in God forgave you. So how are we supposed to forgive others? Now, to forgive someone, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he talks about forgiveness in terms of releasing someone from their debt to you. So to forgive someone is to release them of their debt. And we kind of get this in our everyday vernacular. So we may say, oh, hey, you know what? I really owe you an apology. You know, I really owe you that. See, because we understand this idea of debt. So when you forgive someone, what you're saying to them is, you don't owe me anything anymore. I release you of your debt to me. I release you from the responsibility of repaying what you've taken. taken. I just, I give that away. Um, so, in fact, Jesus does this in Matthew 18. He talks about a, a man, three men who each owed a debt to a, a king or to a master. The master comes and cancels the debt of all of these uh, of all of these men, but one of those men 
He had people that owed him money. And so you know what he does? He goes and just shakes them and demands that they pay him. Even though he had just been forgiven a debt, a bigger debt, a larger debt by his master, he goes and starts collecting on all these smaller debts. And you know what Jesus called this guy? He called him wicked. He said he was a wicked servant. Here's the implication. When you and I refuse to forgive other people in exactly the same way that Jesus has forgiven us, when we refuse to do that, when we gladly drink from the grace of Jesus and then refuse to show grace to others in our lives, when we do that, it is wicked. And it grieves the Holy Spirit of God who is so relational and so in tune with relationships and the way that we treat and the feelings that we have and the words that we speak to other people. We are to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. And so let me just ask the question, how has Jesus forgiven you? You want to know how? He's forgiven you completely. We know this from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that chapter 1, that that hallmark passage. Because it says this, in Him, in Christ, we have the redemption of sin, the the redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of sin. It's something we already have. We are totally forgiven because Jesus took our punishment for us on on the cross. So we're totally forgiven and we're completely forgiven. And we're finally forgiven. In other words, there's a finality to it. Because if Jesus took the punishment for your sin, right, it would be unfair for God to punish you and to punish Jesus. See, Jesus took that punishment so that you and I wouldn't have to. So so how should we respond? Then we're told this, very last verse. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now, listen, it's, we need to stop there and we need to drink this in because it would be easy to just skim over this. If you are here this morning, you are dearly loved by God. If you are here this morning... And even if you're not here this morning, if you're watching online or you're going to watch next week or next month, you are dearly loved by God. If you are in Christ, you are His child. And it's so important to live out of that. Because see, that's not the story that some of you tell yourselves, is it? The the words that some of you use when you reference your story are words like, you know, failure, mistake, you know, not good enough, I blew it, I'm this, I'm that. Some of us probably had parents who just had so much anger that they took out that anger on you, on on you. And so they would say things to you like, you know, hey, you're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to be anybody. Listen, if that is you, you need to begin to play a different tape in your head 
I guess I should say CD or stream a different tape in your head, right? It shows you how old I am because I'm thinking like cassette tapes. I actually had an eight-track tape player in my first car. Some of you will actually have to look that up to even know. I'm way off the point here, right? Yeah, my point is this. You're in charge of the stories you tell yourself about yourself, Nobody else is in charge of that. And Jesus says, look, I say you're better than that. I say you're more than that. I say you are dearly loved. I say I made you and I created you. And I say that you are worthwhile. I say on and on and on. That's the tape you need to begin to play for yourself in your head. And let me tell you, when you start to play that tape regularly... It'll create all the actions you want here. You know, all, the, all these ways that we can bring joy to the heart of God and to the Holy, just to the Holy Spirit. You know, um, Babe Ruth is one of the most decorated baseball players in our nation's history. Many of you may know this if you're a baseball fan. You know, he hit 714 runs in his lifetime, and only Hank Aaron has hit more home runs than that. But here's a stat about Babe Ruth you may not realize. Babe Ruth uh, hit 714 home runs, but he also struck out 1,300, 1,300 and 30 times. Babe Ruth uh, struck out twice, almost, for every time he hit a home run. And you go, well, Pastor, what are you, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. No matter how good a person is, right, no matter how together they are, because we're people, because we're human, we're all going to make mistakes, and, and so I, I just think one of the main points of this passage is that we have to be willing to encourage other people when they fail or when they make a mistake or when they feel they don't measure up. And it's not just that we're encouraging them with, hey, add a boy, add a girl, tiger, go get them. That's not the kind of encouragement I'm talking about. It's more along the lines of you are loved by God. You have been created by God. Jesus has commissioned you as a minister. You're part of the family of God. So live out of that. I'm talking about, you know, real substantive encouragement, not just the power of positive thinking. That's not what this is about. This is about the gospel and what's been done, you know, on our behalf. Now listen, when we're told here to live a life of love, this is a common, overarching theme of Scripture. And in fact, it's so common that sometimes we just miss it. We don't think deeply about it. But this harkens back to John 13 when Jesus gathered His disciples into a little room and He's getting ready to be crucified and to rise again. And he tells them, look, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another. Now, by the way, the command to love one another wasn't new. But what came after that made it new. He said, as I have loved you, that's how I want you to love one another. See, this isn't, hey, I want you to love others the way that you would want to be loved. Or 
I want you to love others even the way that they would want to be loved. No, I want you to love other people the way that I have loved you. This is a raise the bar kind of love. This is a sacrificial kind of love. This is an unconditional kind of love. And friends, in this world, unconditional love is very, very, very difficult to find apart from God. Because almost all of us put conditions on our love. And we do that and we don't even realize we're doing it. But God doesn't love that way. And so when we're told to live a life of love, what, what he's doing is hearkening back to that idea, right? That, that what defines a Christian isn't a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your car. It's not a cross worn around your neck. The identifying thing that should mark you as a follower of Jesus is your love. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. See, this is, in fact, I say this all the time. It's so important to understand this framework. So every single one another of Scripture, so when you read things like pray for one another, honor one another, uh, give to one another, share with those in needs, all those commands are specific ways that we can live out this overarching command to love one another. So how do I better love you? Well, I pray for you when you have a need. How do I better love you? Well, I serve you when you have a need. How do I love you? Well, I honor you. You know, I speak a wholesome word about you, not an unwholesome word about you. This is a big, big deal. And then finally, I just, I want to go back to this forgiveness thing. One of my favorite books, it's an old book, it's an old read, it was written by a guy named Lewis Smeeds in a book he calls Forgive and Forget. And I want you to read what he writes about forgiveness, because this may help some of you. This is very, very powerful. He says this, and if I was a great pastor, this would come up on the screen behind me. But it's not. That's all I'm going to say about that. So here's what he says about forgiveness. You are not thinking clearly when you refuse to forgive on the grounds that you would not be fair to yourself. Forgiving is the only way to be fair to yourself. Getting even is a loser's game. It is the ultimate frustration because it leaves you with more pain than you had in the first place. The only way to heal the pain that will not heal itself is to forgive the person who hurt you. Forgiving stops the reruns of the pain. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free but you discover that the real prisoner was you. This is what forgiveness does, you know. So, so here's the deal. So today, we're not going to close with a worship song. We're not going to ask you to close your eyes and sing Kumbaya. You know what we're going to do today? We're going to say, look, See, sometimes we get this wrong when we come to church. We think we come to church to hear a good message, right? Now, I'm not even going to debate with you about to whether today's message 
was good or not. I'm just telling you that wasn't the point. The point is for you to go out and live differently because of what you heard this morning. Because it's so easy, and James tells us this, it's so easy to think that because we heard a good or a powerful or a moving sermon, that somehow we're better people for it. And we're not. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite seminary professors used to say this. He would say, most Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. So the real work of today is just beginning. Do you know why? Because you have to go out and you have to live as dearly loved children. And you you have to consider that when I'm unkind to someone else, I grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And on the other hand, when I'm bringing value to other people, I'm honoring the concern of the Holy Spirit for relationships. See, this is so, so, so powerful. So really the work's just getting started because now you got to go out and you got to live that. You know, we said at the beginning today, somebody, I heard somebody say it earlier, right? Our mission, our vision for the next three to five year window is to be a disciple-making church. Now, let's just stop there. If we're going to be a disciple-making church, you know what that means for you? It means that you actually have to be a disciple. It means that you have to take God's Word seriously, and it means that you have to be committed to living that out every single day in your one and only life. Friends, you're writing a chapter, and if you're not writing a chapter out of God's Word, you're darkened in your understanding. We read that last week, right? You're living futilely. So we have to be committed to that. So if we're going to be a disciple-making church, that means you have to be a disciple. You have to take today's teaching seriously. But then the second thing is this. We want to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community. You know how that's done? By living a life of love. By giving ourselves away to serve others. Listen, if we live out the teaching that we receive today, even in a small way, we will accomplish that vision that we believe that God has called us to. Hearing a good sermon does not make you a better person. Applying it to your life does. So will you? Will you live? So in order to aid that, I'm going to ask you just a couple of questions, and then we're going to go on our way. Who do you need to forgive? And I'm going to let that linger because I want the Spirit of God to, to, to bring a name to the surface for you. Who do you need to forgive? Who needs your kindness? Who needs to be built up in your life? And then finally, can you use your mouth in a way that where you would just say to God, God, I never want to grieve the Holy Spirit in that way again. Just, and just pray, just pray that prayer. God, I, help me live that out better. Help me be more sensitive, more in tune, more in step with the Holy Spirit that you've placed with me. I don't want to grieve you. 
Would you allow yourself to have a heart that would be broken, that there would be a moment of your life that you would grieve the Holy Spirit of God? So let me pray for you and for us. Hey, God, just thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its conviction. Thank you uh, for the legacy that it calls us to. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us in this room that we would live in a way that's consistent with our vision, that we would live in a way that was consistent with today's teaching, and that you would elevate our awareness that the Holy Spirit is a person. He has a personality. He has a heart. He has desires. He has a will. He has preferences. And it's possible for us to break his heart. So God, let that truth break our heart today. And may we walk out of here living in step and in tune and in touch with that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us today.